Well, welcome back to another episode of Talking Church. It is a privilege to be sitting down with one of my former professors, someone who I now consider to be a friend in ministry, uh, Dr. Alan Tennyson. Thank you so much for sitting down with us and talking church. Well, it is an honor to be here, Logan. Thank you. Yeah, you just spoke uh, here for our uh, ARC One Day Gather. Uh, You're doing a lot of speaking now, which is exciting, and uh, maybe we'll get into that a little bit. But uh, you are, as there's a car revving its engine outside, if you can hear that, maybe you can't, but uh, we can. you are the dean of is it dean of spiritual life? Uh, or? Dean of the College of Church Leadership. Okay, dean of the College of Church Leadership at North Central University, my alma mater, and you know many people in this region are familiar with that. But maybe those who are not as familiar with your work and what you do in teaching, can you tell them a little bit about who you are and kind of what got you into the role you're in right now? Absolutely. So I I come uh, as a pastor's kid. So I've grown up in the church. Uh, decided that that's not what I wanted to do because that's what my parents did and felt God calling me into it in a very forceful way that, nope, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm. So I've pastored in a few different places, three different states. Uh, the longest period of time was in Los Angeles where I was a uh, pastor at the same church for the time I was there. And it was towards the end of that that I felt God calling me to something new. And at the time, I didn't know what the new was, but what I realized was where I was was becoming old. And, and it was this kind of moment, I think I told you this earlier, where I suddenly felt like what I was doing, what God had gifted me to do, what I was helping this community with, wasn't where the community was at anymore. Mm. And I remember having the conversation with my wife that said, hey, I think we have to move on. I just don't know where or why. I just know it's not here. Mm. And it was in the midst of that that I had also gone. I'd moved to L.A. to get my doctorate. So I, I was there at Fuller Seminary. But, of course, I just couldn't help but start working at the church. Sure. And so I'd, I'd gone from one church to this church. Uh, while I was there, I uh, had a wonderful experience with the community, loved the church. It was going to be very hard to leave. But I had an opportunity to come to North Central as a professor of theology, which is what I got my doctorate in. Uh, felt like this was absolutely the right timing. So my wife and I, and my wife and I had only been married for a year. Wow. And so this was our first adventure in marriage. We move all the way to Los Angeles. I start teaching there, and then I've been there now 11 years. About four years ago, uh, well, actually about six years ago, we created a new college, which is why you don't know the name of yeah. it, because you weren't right there Right as then, I was ending, yeah. Just as you are ending, the College of Church Leadership, where we took most of our majors for vocational ministry. So these are pastoral studies majors, youth majors, children's majors, uh, those who are going into the mission field, those who are there because they're preparing for graduate work at seminary, Bible and theology majors. So we, we took all of them and put them together in the same college. And so about uh, four years ago, I decided they were looking for a new dean, and I kept uh, coming up with things that I thought we should be doing as a college. And one of my faculty members said, look, you either put your name in as the new dean, or you stop talking about the things we need to do differently. Sure. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I got to put up or shut up. And so I put my name in, and then surprisingly, I got the job. And so now I'm the dean of of the College of Church Leadership, overseeing most of the vocational ministry majors at North Central University. Wow. Did that answer your question? Okay, good. It did. It did. Thank you. I remember the classes probably have different names now, but I remember having multiple classes with you and just loved learning. And one of the things uh, that I shared here at the event, but also just want to share with everyone, I love how you take the what is good and knowledgeable and theological and significant but you help people who maybe don't have the same amount of education that you do. Talk about, maybe, do you, have you felt like you've always been able to communicate 
high level concepts simple or I mean that's my perception of course let, let me okay let me talk a bit of my academic journey because for me this is really important uh, I I ministered throughout college you know I, I was a pastor's kid I go to college I I still feel a call to ministry by the time I go to college I'm like okay God has called me to do this I start working in a church right away you know so the first church I, I attend in college I go to the youth pastor and say what can I do right and so immediately I become a youth sponsor I'm always involved when I go to get my master's degree, and the reason I did this was I just felt like God wasn't done with me yet in education. Mm -hmm. You know, I had enough. I, I could be credentialed in the Assemblies of God. I could go into full-time ministry. I even had a job offer that was really attractive. And at the time, I'm like, no, I don't know enough. I, I, I felt this hunger that, that this was a God-given thing. So I'm there, but I'm a youth pastor the whole time I'm in my grad program. Then I go to Fuller. And I get hired in this really weird way. I, I moved to Southern California. I'd been an executive pastor before that. Moved to Southern California. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm going to answer your question. I'm going somewhere with this. No, it's I moved great. to Southern California. I, uh, uh, sh I I'm executive pastor at this church in Missouri. And a couple in the church had been from this church in California. And when they found out I was going to their old to that area, they're like, "You have to visit our church. You have to." And I'm like, "Oh, okay. You know, I made a promise." So my first Sunday. I go to their church that they had moved from. What I didn't realize was that he had been the head of the board at that church, hmm. right? They'd moved from LA to uh, Missouri just in retirement, but he'd been the head of the board. He called the pastor ahead of time, told him I was coming, who hmm. I was. I show up my first Sunday. I don't know anyone in Southern California, no one. And, and I've always pastored smaller communities. This was a large church. And, and I mean, I get up there, the church is packed. I go up to the balcony because I don't know anyone. I'm just going to sit in the balcony, say I went to the church, and then let them know. Yeah, I, I showed up. Sat down. I got there late because I didn't know Southern California. So I didn't know how long it was going to take me to sure. get anywhere. Get there late. Worship is ending. As soon as I sat down, the lead pastor stands up and he says, is Alan Tennyson here this morning? I'm like, I just got to sit down. And I'm like kind of sheepishly wave my hand and he points, you know, and says, okay, I want to meet you after church. And uh, I met with him, got a job offer. Wow. Now, here's the point of all it. So I worked at that church for 15 years. The whole time I was in grad school, the whole time I was getting my PhD in theology, I was also pastoring. Hmm. Meaning whatever I was learning in the classroom, I still had to be with people throughout the week in their daily lives. Yeah, I had to do the weddings and the funerals. I had to be in the hospitals. I had to basically counsel the people. I had to learn how to preach that sermon that's dealing with whatever we're going through. It was at that church that we had 9-11, right? And, yeah. and I'm helping pastor a community through that, a church where we had pastors have moral failings. I'm helping pastor a community through that. It kept making theology real to me. That theology wasn't this academic topic that's somehow out there. Theology is about the real life of daily Christians mm -hmm. and how we take the gospel and we apply it to that. So as I was learning in school, and, and Fuller Seminary is a phenomenal school, and I was learning under some amazing professors, I had to be able to always take what I was learning and figure out how to use this for the people in my community, some of whom have never gone to college. Mm-hmm. What can I take from here and translate there? And so for me, that was just a great gift. And I would say this to anyone who's getting higher education in theology or any ministry area, always 
make the church your primary responsibility, even in your education, so that you don't develop this kind of myopic, you know, hey, whatever I'm studying is the most important thing in the world. No, the local church is always the most important thing in the world. Yeah. And whatever you're studying is a means to an end, and the end is serving that local community. Yeah. That's always been the point of theology. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that answer makes so much sense when you say it. Obviously, I've, I've, I've seen the fruit of that for so long, but that I didn't know that. But putting two and two together makes so much sense. I think at times for someone who would not consider myself an intellectual, although I, I very much enjoy that that sphere, at times I feel that there are people that almost talk down to pastors, mm. knowing that, well, you know, if, if we went back to when pastors had to go to seminary to, to preach or if they had to get a theology degree to preach, which, again, is a good thing, but I think that it at times it almost discourages people to mm-hmm. do that. I think the approach of do this so that you can minister better, not so that you can just know more. Do you see in the sphere of academia at times, you know, cross denominationally, that there is that issue with theologians, intellectuals that maybe are are so smart and know the word so well, but haven't necessarily put it in practice enough or? Yeah, I, I think, I always think of theology as belonging to the teaching gifting of the church. Sure. So those who are called to study at this level are called to that because they're called to teach it. Sure. But who are they called to teach it to? Not not to simply other academics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're called to the local church. Yeah. And so when I find academics who are studying, but they're not actually relating it back to the life of the community or doing the prep work, because, you know, you might have the guy who spends his entire dissertation trying to work out some problem and translating something, say, in the book of Hebrews. And, sure. and yet that's going to show its way in a commentary that pastors are going to use for their preaching that does yeah. have practical impact, yep. right? So, so I don't want to just separate these things entirely. But I do find people, and, and I've worked with colleagues, not at North Central, but at other schools, uh, who had no heart or desire for the local church. Mm. This was just a private club of academics who were yeah. talking about what they wanted to talk about. Sometimes they're writing to impress each other. And and it just, man, what what's yeah. the point? Yeah. If you're called to teach, teach. If you're not called to teach, then, you know, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know I'm trying to, exactly how did you ask your question? No, I, 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 think you, going, yeah. I, I think you answered it greatly, and I, I think I see that in you, and I think a great uh, way to do that would be to teach a little bit of what you talked about in, in the message that you shared uh, for our one day here, and we're going to make that available for people to listen to. So if they want to get kind of caught up on everything you taught there, you taught a, a number of things that we as as pastors and church leaders and really just Christians should know about what we believe about theology. Um, and maybe you could give a quick summation of that. And then I would love to to go into, you gave me all these different uh, things we could talk about, and that could fill a whole year's worth of podcasts. And so would love if you could give that quick summary and then maybe jump into the ways to uh, look at the health of your church. That was one thing mm-hmm. that intrigued me. Yeah, so one thing that we talked about was was I, I gave a quick talk on the art of theological preaching. And I wanted to first address how for some pastors, and you mentioned this, theology is an uncomfortable word. 
Uh, and part of it is because pastors and theologians who used to always be the same group of people, and I said this in the talk, but our greatest theologians were all working pastors, yeah. right? I mean, they, they were writing what they were doing as they were trying to apply the gospel and the Christian life to their local community, trying to guide, trying to help, trying to encourage, trying to rebuke, correct. Everything they were doing was was coming out of the local pastorate. And so that's why pastors were reading them and passing on their books. Mm-hmm. And, and eventually what we've done is we've taken like these 2,000 years of pastoral wisdom, and we compress it, right, in, into theology as an academic topic. And then sometimes our students are receiving it as if it's academic, not as if it's organic. Mm. And so sometimes our sure. job as, as teachers is I've got to unpack this. So I, I can tell you about the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, right? And you're like, well, that's a great academic topic. But if I tell you about what it is to minister to people in the midst of a plague— and that they're not sure they're going to go to heaven when they die because of the way they've understood Calvinism, suddenly you understand the pastoral crisis Mm -hmm. that warranted something like Arminianism, and you're like, oh, that's why we care about this. That's why we talk about this. Coming out of a pandemic, I think we saw a lot of things where, man, theology would really be helpful here in, in helping guide how we solve this, how we do this. So, Uh, What I basically did was I said, there's no reason to be uncomfortable with theology. Just think of theology this way. It's an unpacking of the gospel. My definition of theology is it's the understanding, explanation, and application of the gospel. And and I do this thing that I do with my students. I do this uh, little experiment where I'm like, you know, give me a definition of the gospel. And students, and I say, give me a small one, a brief one. And students will always give me sometimes like a multi-paragraph answer. And I'm like, okay, that was great, but I need it to be smaller, smaller. And finally, I get them down to, okay, guys, give me this. Give me a subject a verb and a direct object. Just give me subject, verb, direct object. And so, you know, what's the subject? And usually the class will be like, God, God's the subject. Okay, great. What's the direct object? And and usually it's some variation of us. In fact, someone would almost say just us, but, you know, it's humans, it's creation, it's the church, it's, it's, it's however we want to define who we are. And I'm like, so what's the verb? And, and that's where there's some debate, but usually it's saves. So I'll write down, God saves us. Then I say to them, okay, what do you mean by God? You know, Christianity was was in a pagan culture, mm-hmm. where if I say God, what does that mean? Which God am I talking about? I've got to unpack that. If I'm speaking to a Jewish community, and I talk about Jesus in a way that makes him sound like God, well, am I still a monotheist? I've got to unpack that. All of those things are organic questions, mm-hmm. right? If I talk about salvation, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that God saves us? Saves from what? Saves for what? How did he save us? If I talk about us, who's the us who are being saved? Does it include creation? Is it just human beings? What about my neighbor that is a good person, have always been able to depend on them, but they're not a Christian? Are you telling me they're not going to be saved? Those are the natural organic questions. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I found this out once as a, as a pastor. I had the chance to do a Bible study with a community of immigrants who had never done a Bible study before. Hmm. And so it was a couple in my church who said, hey, we were inviting all of our family. They're, they're an immigrant community, all of our family. They're coming to our house. Would you do a Bible study? I said, sure. So what do you mean to do? And they're like, do the gospel of John. I'm like, okay. So imagine I walk in, and, and they were wealthy. So this is an immigrant family, but they're jewelers. So you know hmm. they, they, were, sure. they were a wealthy immigrant family. They had a large house, a large, you know, great room. They had like 30 people in there. I'm like, all your family? Yep, these are all family members. <laughs> and I'm like, they want to hear the Gospel of John? I'm like, they've never went through the Bible before. Imagine going through the Gospel of John with someone who has no preconceptions of what John's going to say. Yeah. And as I went through that, they started asking me questions about what does this mean? What does that mean? And lo and behold, some of them started recreating ancient Christian heresies 
just by asking organic questions. And it was this great refresher for me that what we're doing in theology is just answering the questions that naturally arise Mm -hmm. when people hear the gospel for the first time or the second time or the third time. So that's what I kind of talked about. If if you're uncomfortable with theology, really you're uncomfortable with the gospel. Mm -hmm. And if you're not uncomfortable with the gospel, you shouldn't be uncomfortable with theology. It's just unpacking what the gospel is. Yeah, that's so good. And and it'll be on our channel that people can watch. That's awesome. I, I think you you said something that just reminded me of this and even kind of ties back into our conversation we were having about the academia um, community versus the pastoral community. I think when you read the Bible with somebody that has never read the Bible before, I've had that privilege to do. And I remember reading it and just your whole life changes. You can't be different after that to say, Mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up, again, you're a pastor's kid. I'm a pastor's kid. But to read the story, I I was wearing a necklace uh, with a stone from the Valley of Elah where David Mm -hmm. presumably, you know, killed Goliath, most likely. And that's where, I mean, that's where it is in scripture, but I I think it's from there. Mm -hmm. Um, And the guy asked me about it and I said, oh, I told him the story. And so then I opened up the Bible and we read it. And, you know, this is in a, in a Muslim country. And I, I remember seeing his eyes just, oh my goodness, like I've never heard this story. It just, it changes the way. And then again, you get asked questions that you go, in some ways are intimidating, right. but I think in other ways are fascinating to say, I would like to know that answer too. Right. As we move on to the, the you know, six things of the health of churches, could maybe you answer that question of, how you have approached answers that you don't know in a way that is still lifting, you know, because I think a lot of people probably put you on the spot now. Uh, you have all your credentials. What's mm-hmm. the answer to this? What's the answer to this? But I've, I've seen you humbly answer questions and maybe even for us who don't feel like we have all the answers, maybe what's the best way to approach that that direct question that we don't have a direct answer to? Uh, two things I would answer this. One, it's funny you say that. I'll be on airplanes, right? And and people ask me what I do, and they'll say, "Well, I'm a college professor." And they always say, "What do you teach?" And I'll, you know, I say, "Well, I teach theology." And I always get almost the same one of response to the other. One is they put their headphones on. Yeah, like, you're like, "Oh, okay, I don't want to talk to you." The other is they look at you and they pause, and you know it's about to come, and then they're like, "Do you mind if I?" You know, it's like, yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sitting next to someone who's a theologian. Yeah. I have a question, right? Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you can ask me. You can ask me. So we have that. So my, my two answers to the, on the one hand, don't be afraid of not knowing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I love this example in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul talks about an experience he has that may be bigger than his theology. He says, I knew a man who was called up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. He says it twice. And what he means is literally, I had an experience with God that seemed like an out-of-body experience, but at the same time, I don't have a theology for how the soul can separate from the body because that wasn't Jewish, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't know how my body could have been in the presence of God. So what he's saying is, I had this experience. Well, how did it happen? I don't know. Hmm. And I, I sometimes I'll tell people, look, I don't know is a biblical answer. Sure. It's okay to say there may be things that I can't explain that I don't know. But if you're getting the same question repeatedly as a pastor— at some point, you need to know. Hmm. At some point, you're like, okay, I can't be a pastor, say, and not be able to talk about suffering because everybody suffers. Mm-hmm. 
Everybody wants to know, why did this happen to me? Why did God allow that to happen? Help me understand this. Doesn't mean, oh, I have an answer to the problem of evil. It means I have to be able to wrestle with this with other people. Mm -hmm. I have to be able to have some kind of what I like to call theological uh, uh, conversation, right? Right. I I can converse with people about this. I can be theologically conversant about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other areas where, you know, people are going to ask questions. Every culture has sets of questions that are unique to that culture, but everyone in the culture is asking them. Uh, uh, Everyone has questions that are universal to humanity. I think suffering is one of those universal questions. Mm -hmm. You can't avoid those. And so I, I will say to my students, it's okay to say I don't know. Don't don't make up something, yeah. right? Like don't don't just well I th- well no no. Do you really know that? But if you're going to get the same question repeatedly from different people, at some point it's your responsibility to have yeah. some kind of answer, some way to wrestle with this. Doesn't mean you solve a problem no one's ever been able to solve, mm-hmm. but it means that you're able to wrestle with this to have some way of talking this out with people. Because here's always the danger. If someone comes to you as a pastor and they ask you a question that's one of those basic questions that you don't know, sometimes they're not going to assume that you don't know. They're going to assume that the church doesn't know Mm. and that the church is not the place we should look for answers. Yeah. And so you don't have to know everything. You're not going to know everything. I have a PhD in theology. I know less and less, I feel like, right? Gordon Anderson, our former president, used to say this, having a doctorate is is about someone who knows more and more about less and less until eventually they know everything about nothing, right? You know, that's how (laughs) it feels. But as a pastor, I have to be able to speak to where people are. Mm -hmm. And that means I have to be conversant in the questions that are going to keep coming up. In our culture, LGBTQ, That's not going away. You need to be able to talk about that. Mm -hmm. You need to help people understand to be able to navigate. There's other questions that I think you just have to be theologically conversant about. Yeah, let me let's pivot there um, for a moment. There were seven things that you mentioned that we kind of brushed through really quick at the end of the message that we said we'd get to here. So let's let's jump into that if we can. Absolutely. There's there's all sorts of numbers that we can get to the four things and the five things, but of those seven things that as a pastor, as a church leader you should be prepared to talk about. That's that's the correct number, yeah, right? Yes, okay. yeah. yeah. I talked about it. And, and again, this is just what I say. In a lot of times, this is by culture. Mm-hmm. So what they might be asking in one culture is not what they're asking in others because sure. it's a different context, different history, a different experience, right? Shared experience of people. But I would say in our culture, one, of course, is what we should all be able to talk about, spiritual formation, moral formation. The point of the church is that we're forming people. Right. I mean, that when people are coming to a community, they're coming to be formed. And and I said this again in the talk, but what we believe isn't meant to just be a belief. It's meant to be a conviction. Hmm. A conviction is a belief. And this comes from a former mentor of mine, Jim McClendon. A a belief, a a conviction is a belief that you hold so strongly that if it were to change, it would change who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. We have Christians attending church for whom Christian doctrine is not a conviction for them. If they find out it wasn't true tomorrow, okay, right? I mean, it doesn't change their life. Part of our formation is that we know that we can take people through a process where this is now who they are. This is how they identify. This is how they see themselves. It's a conviction that spiritual formation, moral formation is a part of that. If I'm going to church and I'm not actually acting like a better person over time, there's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, something should be changing in me. So that's one. Another, I would, I would just say is suffering. 
evil. How do we deal with that? How do we answer that question? Another one would be uh, sex and relationships, right? And, and not just sex. I was a singles pastor. for So mm-hmm. a lot of times we talk about relationships, we talk about sex. But relationships in general, how am I with family? How am I with my spouse, with my children? Uh, sex is a part of that. Uh, we got to be conversant on sexuality, which is different than sex. Mm-hmm. And sexuality and identity. We, we now live in a culture where if I'm not going to be able to identify myself in relationship to God, then I identify myself in relationship to my desires. Mm-hmm. And, and how do we help people navigate a world where the assumptions are different? On, on that question, um, how have you helped pastors and leaders answer the question surrounding, I have a friend, you know, that's usually yes, how it goes, yes. <laughs> but it's I have a friend and they're such a good person. And they're so loving and they're so caring. Whatever it is that's the identity that they have, uh, even outside of the realm of LGBTQ, but it's, it's they're a good person. They don't know Jesus. They're not living according to his word, but they're so good or presumably good from my perspective. They're so kind. They're so gentle. Or in some ways, kinder than me. I've heard that right. before. They're, they're way more kind than I am. How have you answered that question? I would say, one, that's phenomenal. Like, let's not judge someone for being kind or or mistake their kindness as something else. Let's, mm-hmm. let's receive it for it is. For me, I come to Christ because I know that Christ's death covers my sins, that Christ's resurrection becomes my promise, that I can have a reconciliation with God. Someone can be at a different place than I am in their life in terms of their character, in terms of their values, but they're still going to stand in judgment before God. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the only assurance I have is the death of Jesus. And so I say of that person, I'm, I'm not judging them for their kindness. I'm not judging them. I'm just saying when they stand before God, what will that judgment be? The only assurance I have to offer is that Jesus has covered my sins. Hmm. And so that's what we're working towards is a gospel-oriented person who recognizes that they have been saved and that their own goodness could not save themselves. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that because someone's not a Christian that they're going to be a horrible person. No, sure. it doesn't mean they're horrible. I, there are a lot of people who aren't Christians who, in fact, one of my closest friends is Hindu. Mm-hmm. He is amazing. I have gone to him in need, and he has always responded. I remember once my wife and I had a major health crisis. I had to drive her to the hospital. I called him because he lives close by. Can you watch my son? He drove over so quickly, he ran over my cable box, right? I mean, he was trying to yeah. get to us. To, to, I trusted him with my son. He's not a bad person. But I have to leave that judgment to God and yeah. say the assurance that we have is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's the gospel. That's the hope. That's what I'm sharing with people. Mm-hmm. So did that answer yeah, your question? Yeah, so helpful. Okay, yeah. yeah, I interrupted you on your, your flow of the seven. Okay, so another state and politics, right? We, we've got to be able to talk about what should the relationship of the church be with the state. And I think this became a much more relevant topic during the pandemic. Certainly. Where suddenly a lot of pastors were like, oh my goodness, do I have to tell the government no? Like, 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 how do I handle this? Where's the boundary line? How do we help our Christian brothers and sisters deal with politics? We're in danger at times of having this political binary in our culture co-opt what it means to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. That I think I have to be this or I have to be that. And, and I'm going to say a really horrific line right now, so forgive me if this is terrible. But Satan is registered in both parties. Sure, yeah. And, and that sometimes we don't see that. Mm-hmm. And so that we have to help people navigate the political questions yeah. without allowing that to take over who they are in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have to be able to deal, I think, uh, be theologically conversant with science. 
Uh, I'm a big believer in science, so so let me just say that because yeah. now now a Christian talks about science, they're like, well, "What do you mean?" No, uh, I'm a big believer in science, and I want to say of the world that appreciates science as a Christian, you're welcome because yeah. modern science comes out of a, a Christian understanding of nature, yeah. right? And and the orderliness and the idea that God has given us the ability to know this. Yeah, uh, we've sometimes rewritten the history so that we we don't really highlight that, but science has also become an authority for us on all questions. Sure. Uh, even questions that might not be equipped to answer that we demand that it answer right now. Mm-hmm. And we have to be able what to talk about that. would be an example that. of some of those? Morality. I, I think we have seen people who have used science as, as a way of talking about what the moral thing is. And I'm like, that science, what, what you're talking about isn't equipped to do that. You've just fed your presuppositions through something, and your presuppositions have now come about on the other side as if they're evidence. Sure. But no, no, no. These were presuppositions that yeah. you've used science to somehow baptize a scientific evidence. That's not how this works. Yeah. And so I think sometimes we we have a, a in the church and in culture in general, we're just scientifically illiterate, mm-hmm. not in terms of what science says, but how science is supposed to work and what the limits are. Yeah. And part of it is in in the vacuum of a religion, right, that we don't share, science has to become the authority. Mm-hmm. Just like politics, I think for us at times becomes the new morality. Sure. So every single election, I'm fighting for the soul of the nation because, you know, in, in the absence of religion, <laughs> politics becomes religion. Sure. And the absence of a belief in revelation, science now has to do all of that. It has to carry all the lifting for us. Sure. And I, and I think as Christians, we have to be able to say, look, this is what we can know. This is what we don't know. This is what we don't know yet. This is what we, science may never be able to answer. Yeah. And so we have to be able to say, this is not going to be our authority on this. Yeah, I, I remember watching a debate. I don't know exactly who it was between, but it was, you know, like a creationist versus a non-religious evolutionist. Um, and the creationist mentioned part of the fear of the science community is that if, your, if, if my theory is wrong, that your theory doesn't still doesn't solve your problems right you know and i think that's something that your theory could be wrong and my theory still works yeah yeah you know but but my theory being wrong doesn't doesn't fix anything uh, a question back going back to the government thing people brought up a lot of romans 13 i believe where yes. you know paul talks about honoring government authority and that verse was thrown around quite uh, weaponized potentially during covid about how we're supposed to respond to government i think we're moving towards uh, my dad had preached a message on what chapter of daniel we're in we're moving towards mm-hmm. this uh, place although i feel america is still far off from true persecution that we mm-hmm. we're seeing in other parts of the world people are starting to be, I would say, uncomfortable compared to maybe how they grew up. How would you advise pastors and leaders to even read that verse and other verses like it about honoring our authority, uh, mentioning the verse of give to Caesar, what Caesar's give to God, what's God? I think some of that context is missing and maybe could be helpful for us as we help our church navigate those issues. Absolutely. I, I would argue, and again, I, I don't think there's just one answer, because sure. I think we can we can experience different things here as churches where, where we come up with different answers, but we're still following the same principles, mm-hmm. and it's still biblical. Uh, but I think we have to begin with what Jesus says, and, and to recognize that the coin in question was a coin that had the stamp of Caesar that also had written under it the august son of the august God. So that for a lot of Jews, it wasn't just paying a tax that I shouldn't have to pay to a foreign government. It's even handling the coin feels like idolatry Mm. because it's calling a person a God. 
So when Jesus says, well, you know, show me the coin, because he doesn't have it, and they show it to him whose image is on it, well, Caesar's. So you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you give to God what belongs to God. It's a line, right, that Caesar may get our taxes, but he doesn't get our worship. He doesn't get to take the place of God for us. So when Paul writes in Romans 13, and Paul tells us to pay taxes to whom taxes are due, give, give to what we owe someone. If honor is due, give honor. What Paul doesn't say is worship right, which is conspicuous by its absence. And so I think I said to you, you know, if we go from Romans 13 to Revelation 13, and now the government's represented by a beast, you're like, what happened? It's a government that now demands the worship, right? And the church has to say no. Mm -hmm. So I would say going to Romans 13, Paul gives us what I would think are two great principles. The first is uh, that the government is there for order, right? It's it's God's agent. So we have to respect the government. We have to realize the government is trying to do the right thing. If it is, what's the order here? It's there for order and injustice, and it also has to be applied fairly, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we can ask those two questions of our government. Is our government doing what it thinks is best for order and justice, and is it applying that fairly? Yeah. If it's doing that, I think we have to follow along even if it's wrong and it turns out, you know, we don't know if it's wrong, but maybe it was. Yeah. They were doing the best they could. Yeah. And they were applying it fairly. Mm -hmm. Now, if they're doing the best they can, but they're not applying it fairly, we have yeah. to call that out, right? Yeah, and that's and where... And say, that's not fair. Yeah. You can't do this over here and do that over there. That doesn't work. Yeah. But I think, you know, as, as I said to you before, if we keep telling the government yes, then it gives our no more power. Mm-hmm. Because if you know that I'm trying to work with you, yeah, sure. when you cross that line and I say no, it becomes easier to see that line has been crossed. Mm -hmm. If I say no to you from the beginning and you're like, yeah. look, look, I'm just trying to do the right thing here, yeah, yeah. then the no gets diluted over time. Yeah. Right? Hey, can you mow your grass? No. No. Yeah. It's like, well, okay. Yeah. Hey, can you match the sign to fit our community? No. No, no. It's like, yeah. well, what, what is that? You know. Yeah. But when we have worked hard and yeah. we have tried to work with the government and the government knows we're trying to do what's right. And then the government, we say, guys, you've crossed a line here, yeah. and, and we're going to say no. And the no has to carry with it the willingness to be punished for our no. Sure. Uh, to be punished without violence, right? Yeah. Because th that's part of our witness is if we go to the cross, we go to the cross. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that flippantly, but we have to be able to say no, come what may. Yep, yep. But you don't get our worship. You, you don't get to tell us, well, now we grant you the right to. No, no, no. You don't grant us any right here. The right was already ours to begin with. This mm. was given by God, and that's what we recognize. That's so good. So good. I, I've interrupted you multiple times. I want to make sure that we get through. I, I think we're, are we five in? I think six. Six. six? Okay. I think the so seventh one one's just service and work. Okay. And, and I think this is something that we don't talk enough about in the church, which is how does my work actually reflect my faith? I think sometimes we, we distinguish work as if it's sacred or if it's secular. And I'm like, that, that's not the distinction, right? It's not sacred versus secular. It's really just sacred versus sinful. The idea is that hmm. anything I'm doing can be used by God unless it's something that's working against God. And so how do we incorporate our work into our faith? How do we see our work as actually being the work of God? And that doesn't just include the work I'm paid for. It includes whatever I'm doing. So it's my service. You know, we're told in Scripture that we're to equip people for works of service, mm -hmm. right? That includes what we do eight hours a day. That includes what we do in our volunteer time. That includes whatever is part of that vocation of being human. That includes family, includes job, includes society. And I think we don't always talk about that enough in the church. You know, and I sometimes make the joke, I can tell you as a pastor how to be a better husband. I can tell you how to be a better father. I'll do sermons on that. People are like, thank you. But do we tell people how to be better at work? 
It's like somehow that becomes the line that, that oh, don't tell me that. Sure. Well, I, I can't tell you how to do your job if I don't know your job, but I can tell you how God can be at work in your job based on what God does. Mm-hmm. And, and so anyway, I could unpack that. That, yeah. that would be a whole other thing. Yeah, a yeah. whole other thing. And we'll, we'll definitely uh, bring you back. Before we, we close, um, there was five things that we were talking about as well. Again, there's all sorts of things that we'll get into in the future, and I'm sure there's other teachings out there that people can learn about. Um, there were five things that you mentioned about, five things pastors can do to uh, study. Uh, mm. Can you unpack those quickly, um, and, and again, as quick as you can, uh, that may, to maybe leave people with that? Because I think for, for a lot of pastors and leaders, they're listening, and they're going, I want to learn more. I want to yeah. become better. I, want, I mean, we're not maybe all going to get our doctorate in historical theology, but we, we can all learn more. I would say five, five areas where you need to grow in your learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one is scripture. Uh, as a pastor, you always need to be studying scripture. And that doesn't just mean studying the Bible. Start getting aids for studying the Bible. So, so think of, of what can you get? There's tons of commentaries. What I've tried to do as a pastor is find one great commentary on every book of the Bible. Mm. And, and one really good one that I'm going to go back How to. How do you choose? Uh, well, sometimes I, I just know who's out there, but that's because of my area. Sure. You can go online and mm-hmm. just type in best commentary on Job, sure. and there will have three or four websites that are actually dedicated to this question. Okay, uh, here's the, And they'll explain why. And, and they're written at different levels. So find the one that's at your level to sure. say, okay, I, I, don't, I don't read Greek. I don't read Hebrew. Don't give me a commentary that's going to depend on that knowledge. Yeah, yeah. But give me one that's going to depend on what I'm coming with that's, great. that's still going to help me do this and get to know that. So scripture is one another, is doctrine. Doctrine. And I mean, what, what is it that the church should actually be teaching? What is it that we actually know? As I said, doctrines related to the gospel. So I, I want to be able to have resources that will help me in explaining the death of Jesus, will help me explaining the resurrection of Jesus, help me explaining the meaning of the church. Help me. There, there's tons of resources out there. I'm going to talk about those yeah. in a minute. So scripture, doctrine. Would you say the difference would be what scripture is what scripture says, doctrine is what scripture means? In- it's, it's, it's the teachings of the church yeah. that we've all agreed to, sure. right? That, yeah. that it's, it's our summary of scripture to say this is what the point is. Then it's those topics. What are the topics that you need to know about? There's great resources, say, on sexual identity. There's great resources on suffering. There's great resources out there that are on everything that I've talked about. Building that library to say, say, I, I want to be able to pull something. When, when someone comes to me with a question, they're like, hey, pastor, we have to talk about this. Or I have to address it in my community because we had a shooting this week. Mm-hmm. And now half the church wants me to preach on this. Half the church wants me to preach on that. I've got to be able to pull resources down and say, how am I going to address this? There's tons of resources for that. So scripture, doctrine, topics. But a fourth is just pastoral competencies. So as a pastor, am I equipped to counsel, you know, up to the level that I can? I may not be a therapist, and I have to know where that line is. Mm-hmm. Am I equipped to that? Am I equipped to administrate, right? Am I equipped to lead? I'm, there's all these things I have to do as a pastor besides preach, right? Do I have books or resources that help me grow in those areas? Mm-hmm. And then the fifth one is just personal growth itself, what do I need to work on in my own life in order to develop myself? Where are the areas where I'm falling short? What resources can I have to help me? So I would say look at those five areas and then look at five kinds of resources. One is, is books, libraries. Uh, build a library for yourself. It used to be pastors were known by their libraries. Sure. And when pastors would die, the question would be who gets their library, right? And they would pass it on. And sometimes mm-hmm. all the pastors in the community would come to their house or they pass it on to their children or something. But these libraries were these resources they would use. It's like the tools of a carpenter. 
carpenter. If you're a carpenter, you've yeah. got to have tools. Yeah. If you're a mechanic, you should have a garage, yeah. right? If you're a pastor, you had a library. You had resources. Mm-hmm. Look at your library. Maybe going to the library, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at today, something we had that we didn't have when I was young was podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have these incredible podcasts. I think a real famous one, and I made the joke, Ask N.T. Write Anything, right? Yeah, or yeah. Talking Church. You know, yeah. podcast. If you're listening to this, you're already doing it, right? Yeah, but congrats. things that, that you listen to that are helping you digest important information on one of these five areas. Uh, social media has been something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I've gone to social media actually to hear what the critiques are. Mm. Uh, sure. I, I've watched people on YouTube or even Facebook post why I hate the church. And I am downloading that in myself to feel like next time I'm speaking or preaching, they might be in the congregation or they're sure. listening to this. How do I address that? How do I listen to their concern? Media, and, and this is a crazy thing, but the stories we share now as a culture aren't, aren't the scriptures. It's media. It's, it's movies and TV. It's, you know, as I said before, more people know the relationship between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker than they do between Jacob and Esau. Yeah. So are we conversant with what the stories are in our culture right now? Sometimes they provide the new metaphors that mm-hmm. we can use to explain things. Other times, I just want to know what's out there. I want to know what people are digesting, how they're now seeing the world. Uh, media is a great way of understanding how people see the world. And then finally, a, a fifth resource is community. And that's the dialogue, the talking. Mm-hmm. Who do you talk to? Who do you sit down with at, at Denny's? We'll just do Denny's. Who do you sit down with at Denny's as a pastor or a friend and say, let's talk these issues out? What's your support network? What's your social network? Uh, because you can read, you can watch, you can listen. But sometimes the most effective learning is just that conversation mm-hmm. that you're having with people that you trust. Yeah, that's so good. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. And again, there's so many other things we could open up that uh, we'll have to save for another day. But uh, it's my belief that the world needs more of uh, Dr. Tennyson. Mm -hmm. And so I'm grateful for you, the impact you've made in my life through my development, the impact you're making into hundreds of pastors and churches' lives, and uh, just grateful for you and the resource that you bring to us in the church and leaders of the church. And just wanna say thank you again. And again, we'll make sure to have you back. Thank you so much, Logan. I appreciate it. 